I love that. You guys were not about to let a video stop you from talking about fall drinks. <laughs> I'm Henry Michael. I'm the student pastor here. Um, it's MEA, so you get the youth pastor. Um, lucky you guys. Um, but let's, let's get into our topic today. Let's pray. Uh, the, the prayer today is from, from Hebrews uh, chapter 4. Heavenly Father, nothing is hidden from you. You know us, and you want us to know you. You tell us to come to you as we are, and that we can have confidence in the mercy and grace that you offer us. By your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your word. Reveal your truth, and help us to receive it. Empower us to stand firm in the faith, and teach us to depend fully on you as we join you in the kingdom work you are calling us to. Lord, we're thankful for Fall Fun Fest. We're thankful for the, the volunteers, the many volunteers that came and, and helped run that. We're thankful that so many families were blessed through Fall Fun Fest. We pray um, people who, who came who maybe didn't have a church that they find a home here and they find Jesus. Uh, we pray for um, just the, the unrest in Haiti that's going on and the, and the students that are unable to go to school and learn and seek an education. We pray for stabilization and safety for those kids. Lord, we pray as we study your word today that you reveal it to us, that we learn to love you and love others better. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so um, today we are talking about pride. We're talking about pride. And so to set you up, I'm, I'm going to put you into a, one of my biggest prideful moments of my life. I was uh, interning at this church down in Louisville, Kentucky. That's why I moved down there in the first place right after college. And it was this massive church, and I was a small groups intern. And so this church was planted, uh, you know, however many years ago, I think in the 60s, um, by this man named Bob Russell. And he's like, I don't know, there's like Jesus, then Bob Russell in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a big deal. Um, but he had retired, and, and uh, there's a church that planted this church that we were at. And they were having their 100-year anniversary. And so they came to, to uh, my boss, and they're like, hey, we want someone to speak uh, on that Sunday morning, and Bob Russell is going to be speaking too. And I was like, they're like, do you want to do it? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I, the only thing I heard was, you are going to be speaking with Bob Russell. I was an intern. I'd only preached maybe two or three times in my entire life. I should have known what I was getting myself into. But I thought, man, this is going to be the thing. Uh, so I worked really, really, really hard on this. I, I wrote it. I rewrote it. I think I had like three different versions. I put in all the best like analogies and funny one-liners and I was going to be awesome and I would, I was like every t once in a while when I got something good, I was like, man, what if I'm, what if I'm like better than Bob Russell? <laughs> like, what if I'm like, I end up being like super awesome? Well, the, the Sunday morning came and they told me to get there. Uh, at a really suspiciously early time, and I get there and nobody is there at all. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's all right. Uh, maybe they just want to prepare me, you know, maybe give me a massage before I go up there with Bob. Um, that wasn't it at all. There, I was, uh, what I found out is I was the Sunday school teacher for the morning. 
And um, so I, I go in there and there's this room in the corner of the sanctuary. It's a smaller church. It's an aging church. Um, and, I, and I realized um, I did not craft the right sermon uh, for the crowd that I was preaching to. Um, and I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to say, like, say anything bad about older people. But these were the founding members of the church a uh, hundred years ago. The, the, they were not young. <laughs> and so I start, I'm like, you know what, this is an opportunity to learn and grow. And so I, like, I went up there and I, I brought out my Matrix references because that was cool back about 10 years ago. Um, I told these people, they were all, they were in wheelchairs, they were older, but I was still telling them to get out and be in each other's lives and be in community and be in small groups and I'm just cringing the whole time like this is, I, they did not prepare me well, I, I, where's Bob? And um, so I, I preached this sermon, I get done and uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, wasn't the right context wasn't what I thought it was, but maybe I did a good job. And so this lady rolls over to me, and she's, uh, <laughs> as I'm thinking this, <laughs> she, she says, next week we'd love for you to join us at our, at our Saturday morning Bible study. And I'm, I'm like, this has been an emotional roller coaster for me, and so I'm, I'm, I'm on my way back up now, because I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, maybe I did do a good job. They want me to come teach, they want me to come preach next week, and and as I was humbly about to say, well, we'll see, you know, I've got to check my busy schedule as an intern, um, she finished her sentence. Uh, she said, yeah, we're learning how to teach better and to communicate more effectively, and I think that you could really benefit from it. <laughs> so I uh, walked out, my head held low, and... Uh, sat in the pews surrounded by hundreds of people as Bob came up to preach and he preached a killer sermon. So that's my story of pride. Um, it was one of those moments that you just doesn't feel good, but you learn a lesson from it. But today that's what we're going to be talking about as well, about pride and how it affects all of us and how it can destroy all of us as well. So if you are uh, want to read along with us, we are in page 495 in the books, in Bibles in front of you. If you are looking at your phone or a tablet, we are in the NIV version, so feel free to join us in that. Um, also, if you, if you didn't get a sermon application guide, they're, they're in the back of the rows. Feel free to just get up whenever um, and grab one of those. They just help you follow along and, and give you questions for the week. So if you're just joining us or if you've missed a couple weeks uh, in our series on Esther, just give you a quick recap. The main characters, Esther and Mordecai, they're the ones we've been studying the most in this series. They are living in, per in the Persian Empire. They are Jewish people, and they're in captivity. There's a whole reason for captivity. We can cover that some other time. But they are, uh, to a great degree, they have completely like, assimilated into Persian culture. There's no Jewish distinctiveness left in them. And so, like... Uh, Mordecai, he is a high official in the government. Esther has become the queen uh, to King Xerxes. Um, they've, like I said, they've basically kind of put their, their Jewishness on the side until Haman comes on the scene. And Haman, uh, he's the bad guy. Haman comes out and he is, is opportunistic. He's like, man, I, we need money. The Jews have money. Let's kill all the Jews and take their money, basically. That's, that's the short answer of that. 
And so Mordecai finally stands up for his faith, doesn't bow down to him, and puts all the Jewish people at risk because of that. And as we're going to see, uh, Esther is going to intervene with the king in these chapters. We're going to be in, uh, primarily in 5 and 6, and then we're going to kind of summarize chapter 7 as well. But we're going to see whether or not Esther takes a stand. So starting in uh, chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had, Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked again, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above, above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled upon it. Then go to the king, king's banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. And so what we have here in, in chapter 6, I'm going to do a quick little summary to jump us forward a little bit, but that night the king, Xerxes, had trouble sleeping. And so what he does, he did what most of us do is we, he started reading, but he started reading the chronicles of his reign, and so the stuff that he did. And when he was reading through it, he saw something Mordecai had done a couple chapters back. And he saved the king's life. He foiled a plot to kill the king. And so, what, so he asks his official, he's like, what did we do to honor Mordecai? What did we do to, to, to show him how thankful we were? And the official said, well, we didn't do anything. And so he's like, well, we got to do something. So he called, he's like, who's out in, the, who's out in my court? Well, as Haman was out there, and so he brought in Haman, and he was trying to get suggestions of what they should do for Mordecai. Obviously, Mor uh, Haman's there saying, hey, let's kill, let's kill Mordecai, and uh, he's about to get a surprise. So we're going to jump into verse 6 here. Then Haman entered 
And king, the king asks him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. And let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And so that's what happened. They did that, and, and uh, Haman was the one who had to robe Mordecai and bring him through the streets and, and praise his name to all the people. And he was obviously very uh, embarrassed about it and, and went home with his head down. And we get this ominous uh, interaction between one of his friends and him and says, hey, if you're going to try and kill Mordecai, he's a Jew, and he's very high uh, in honor right now with the king, you're probably going to fail. And that's what happens because he gets taken to the feast. He gets found out. The king is enraged that he is trying to kill not only his queen but all of her people and that he's tricked everyone to do it. He is impaled on the exact execution device that he made for Mordecai. And so it's a, it's a crazy story about pride and it's, it's a very vivid story on pride. And we're going to be... Um, Talking about Haman primarily, we're going to jump out of Esther and Mordecai a little bit and talk primarily about the pride of Haman because we see this rise and fall throughout this story and it's a spectacular rise and fall and we're going to be talking about it because pride is sneaky. Pride is in all of our lives. We get, we, all of us have stories of prideful moments. It can be a funny like, thing to look back on, like uh, my story about Bob and I preaching together on Sunday. But it could also be one of those things that you think back on and you, and you cringe because you realize how much it destroyed your life. We also see pride as something that is it's hidden. And so right now, we, we might be in a place where we are in the midst of our lives being destroyed and we don't even know it. Pride is sneaky. Pastor Tim Keller gives us a biblical definition of pride. He says, it is a concentration on self, an absorption in, in self. Pride makes you concentrate everything about you so you don't get in relationships, jobs, you don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. And we see that all throughout the Bible. The Bible is very clear on pride and its devastating effects. We see it in Philippians 2.3. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Look to others. Don't look at yourself. And it's pride. And this is Psalm uh, 10, four. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That points to the worship of self and the obsession to self. In Romans 12.16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. That's talking, hey, don't hang out with only people that automatically make you look better. Look to other people, love other people. 
We're going to do a lot of C.S. Lewis uh, quotes today because C.S. Lewis has written one of the most famous and and well-respected chapters on humility and pride in mere Christianity. So um, warning you on that, but make sure if you haven't read that chapter to read that sometime this week or sometime soon. But he uh, famously says on pride, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is dangerous. Pride will destroy you. As we're going to see, as we saw in our passages today, it's important not only to just recognize pride, but recognize pride in our own lives. I think with pride, the temptation is to look outwards. It's easy to, or it's, it's easy to look at people like our politicians, celebrities, maybe our spouse or our kids, and we're, we can say those people are prideful, but I think the need that we have today is that we need to look at ourselves because pride is slowly damaging not only our culture but ourselves. Based on the definition that we talked about on what pride is, there's two major types of pride that we need to look at in our lives. And so the first one is the most obvious one. The other one is a little less obvious, and we'll get to that in a second. But the first one is an air of superiority. That's the one that is easy to see in, in our world and in our own lives. This air of support, superiority means that like we're, we think we're better than others, we look down on other people, And what it does is it turns us into schemers. We're always calculating how to get the focus on me, how I can get my advantage. We celebrate it in our culture as people who are winners, as people who are competitive, they're shrewd, but at the end of the day, it's self-destructive and it will lead to what the Bible promises is a fall. This is what Haman is, is dealing with. This is the sin of Haman. The pride of Haman is an air of superiority. And we see that through his opportunistic scheming. Always trying to find a way to get to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. He is a high official. He's basically number two, but it's not enough because he's still trying to get more and more and more honors. That's what pride does to us. It's hungry. It's never fed all the way. Now, we may not be as obvious as Haman, but we all have self-destructive, air of superiority uh, things, and, and some of us more than others. Now, some of you guys might be like, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm not like that. I, I've learned from my mistakes. You know, I, I can look back and like, you know, I've, I've had moments like that, but I've learned, so that's not me. But there's another kind of pride that is just as sneaking, just as dangerous, that we probably all have struggled with if we haven't struggled with the other one. And that is a more hidden and deceptive form of pride, and it's masked in inferiority. And this is a dangerous one because we mistake inferiority with humility. We think that, oh, you know, it's just poor self-esteem and we're just, you know, when we don't like something about ourselves. Or, you know, we do self-deprecating humor, like, like me preaching on MEA weekend. I, I had to bring that one back in there. Self-deprecating humor can oftentimes be a form of pride. 
because we're trying to control the conversation, how people see you. We want to say it first because we know they're thinking about it, and we want to say, oh, I recognize that I'm this way, so you, you don't have to think it or say it. Let's just get it out there. And what you're doing is you're hoping that they're going to say, no way, you're not this way, you're this way, you're, you're good, you're great, you're, you're handsome, you're thin. Whatever it is, we use these self-deprecating humors to put the focus on ourselves. This is still pride. It's concentration on ourselves. It's absorption in self. It makes you concentrate everything about you so you don't get into relationships, jobs. You don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. That can be superiority or inferiority. That's all in the name of humility, but it's not humility. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Each form of pride is putting a focus on me, a betterment of me, who I hang out with, whatever position I'm in. It's always about how can I look better. And it's urgent that we see these forms of pride in our lives. And so once we see these forms of pride in our lives, I want to make an argument that we need to do everything we can to reject it. Because although we're not focusing on, on uh, 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 Esther and Mordecai, they have some prideful moments in their life as well. They lose their Jewish distinctiveness. They're comfortable in their culture. They're not necessarily thinking about other people. They're, they're kind of just happy and comfortable until something happens. And then they take the focus off themselves and their comfort and what they want. And they look outwards. Haman never learns that lesson. Haman is always looking to himself, always looking to win. So how do we recognize a Haman-like tendency, whether it's inferiority or, or in uh, superiority? Because again, our culture is saturated in pride, and it's really hard to reject it because it's all around us. It's hard to be different in that way. I'm going I'm to make a quick disclaimer here because I'm going to talk about social media. Um, social media is one of those things that can be used for good or for bad. Um, I'm not, I don't want anybody to think after this that every time or whenever they post anything that there's some sort of weird pride behind it. There's some great pictures or posts that are inspiring and helpful. But for me, I know it's not inspiring or helpful for other people because I want the focus on me. I was looking through some of my old social media accounts. I don't use Instagram anymore, so if you add me as a friend, I don't even know my password, so I'm just not going to accept you, not because I don't want to, but um, we were looking through them, and I, I just could remember, I was looking at my thought process behind the things that I was posting, and so like a lot of my posts had to do with fishing, because I love fishing, and so I would, I would show a picture, and I'm like, man, I hope people see that I went fishing, and how cool that fish looks, and how I went to this beautiful place, and, and, and I went with these friends, and, and it's just like this constant thing of what I hope, I hope, I hope people see, because I really wanted people to see it and like it, because that's what I got my kicks out of that week. And my day would go up and down based on how many people liked it or didn't like it or I, my thought on the picture. I, I liked the picture, but if it didn't get enough likes, I'm like, oh, why did I post that? And I was like, you know, like, it was just this weird, frustrating 
thing, but the, the, everything behind it was I want people to look at me. And oftentimes, that's what happens with social media. But it's not social media's problem. It's our problem. It's the human behind it. It brings something out in some of us and something out in me. It could be something completely different for you guys. Some, some of you guys have different things where, where you hide behind it so that people will look at you and celebrate you and make, make comments for you to make you, yourself sleep better at night. But that's something that I struggle with and because when we start looking at these little things in our lives that seem harmless on the outside, it becomes more and more clear how hard pride is to reject. When you're prideful, it's impossible to learn lessons because it's never your fault. You're always blaming somebody else. When someone comes at you at some form of criticism, you reject them, you hide, you run away. You can never learn a lesson. It's another reason why pride is hard to reject. A truly humble person doesn't take themselves seriously enough to be crushed by criticism. They learn from their mistakes. They mess up, but they learn from their mistakes. A prideful person cannot. Another form of pride, maybe if, if that first part you didn't struggle with and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I feel like I've rejected it. The other form that we need to reject and we need to be careful of is pride can also hide itself in worry, fear, and anxiety. If you worry about your job, your kids, your friends, all this anxiety about what could go wrong, how do I keep this, how do I protect this, you're thinking primarily about yourself and your own strength. There's things that cause anxiety, fear, and worry. If you're a parent, preaching to the choir. But biblical humility does not focus on self and your power and your strength to hold things together or protect it, but it focuses on God, his power, and promise, not your perceived power or your ability to protect it. C.S. Lewis again says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And this is one of the most damaging parts and scary parts of the sin of pride. Because it sneaks into our faith. It sneaks into our Christianity and into our churches. And this is masked in inferiority and superiority as well. Because what, is, what happens when we start reading our Bibles and we start learning more about God and we start coming to church every week and we start hanging out with the right people and we, we don't say bad words anymore and we stop doing this and stop doing that and we start doing this and we get really good at church and we start priding ourselves that we're good at church. We're, per, we're, we're pursuing humility and we, and we say, oh, I'm humble because I'm pursuing humble, but what we're doing is we're leaving God out of the equation and we're focusing on ourselves how much Bible knowledge we have, letting people know how much Bible knowledge we have, and we're putting ourselves in the center and God on the outside. The other way is we realize and we look at God and we look at his promises and how uh, holy he is and how sinful we are, and we start looking at that and we're like, God would never love me. There's no way he can love me. 
There's no way he could save me. He, doesn't, he would never love someone who does this, thinks this way, or, or wants to do this thing. There's no way God can love me. And again, you're making your faith about yourself. Pride turns worship of Jesus into worship of self. We want to control things. We want to control God. But God cannot be controlled. That's why we have classes like the story of God. I'm in the story of God right now, and it's awesome. I'm actually skipping it right now to preach. But it's a, it's a great class. Because it takes you out of the center of your life and out of the center of the story of your life. I went to seminary. I should know all the answers, but I'm learning more and more and more because guess what? I'm prideful. We're all prideful. We need things like that to take us out of the center and put us into God's story because God is in control. There's a beginning and there's an end and God is inviting us to have a part in his story, but not to control it. It's, it's a great reminder, a daily reminder that we're not the center of our own universe. We also have small groups. This is another way to reject pride. Now, small groups can be a way that you can also focus on yourself as well. Because small groups, it's easy to say, well, they're not deep enough. They're not, they didn't call me when I was sick. They didn't, they don't, they didn't follow up on this. They're not, they're not ministering to me super well. And it's easy to make small groups about yourself. And there's wisdom into going to one small group versus another. But don't make small groups about you. You need community. You need people in your life. You need to open up your life enough so that people can see you in your best and in your worst and they can point you back to Jesus and, they, and point out the pride in your life so it doesn't destroy you. Community is very, very important. In Proverbs 16.5, it says, The Lord detests the proud heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Rejecting it is very important, but it should also scare you. Pride seeps into every area of our lives, and it is a very, very scary thing. And we can be left on things like this and be like, man, what are we supposed to do? Like, even if our religion is bringing out pride, if our, you know, every little thing that we do, like, where are we safe? And I think that's a good place to be. But there's an answer to it. And that answer and that cure is seeking Jesus. So throughout this story, as we're seeing uh, the story of Esther, Mordecai, and Haman, we're seeing a juxtaposition of pride and humility. So Esther, in this story, right before she goes in to see the king, she's fasting for three days. She denied herself sustenance and food and water, and she comes before the king, and this king literally thinks he's a god. And what we didn't get into at the beginning part is the king holds out his scepter. He, her life is, is literally based on the, on the mood of the king of that day. So if he was displeased with her, he could have like put his thumb down or something, and she would have been executed on the spot because she came in, he was not, she was not summoned. And so, as the queen, she comes in, probably gaunt and thirsty and hungry, looking terrible because of fasting and being sad and, and mourning for her people. And she comes in, and the king is pleased with her. She is God-directed. She is not self-centered. She's not looking to herself. 
She doesn't care if she lives or if she dies because she has died to self. If her people can't live, it doesn't matter to her. It's very important that we see that. But Haman, on the other hand, he's the kind of person no one wants to hang out with. He's the kind of person who gathers his friends together and starts talking about all the things that he's good at and all the things that he has and no one else gets a word in. He is the ultimate picture of, of, of pride and it's almost to a silly extent how prideful and how evil he is. Now, when I look at those two pictures, I want to think of myself as more of an Esther. Somebody who can put my pride away, that can die to self, that I can think about others more than I think about myself, and I would risk death to save other people. But I think too often, I think this is true for most of us, we're more like Haman. We don't reject pride. We look to ourselves. We try to make, we may not go to the extent as Haman, but we are guilty of Haman-like tendencies. We wait outside of the throne room, not of a king, but of our God. And we hope that he delights in us by our actions. We hope that he'll call to us, but we, we don't want him to do too much. We don't want him to ask us to go somewhere that, that makes us feel uncomfortable, talk to people that, that make us feel uncomfortable. We're focusing on ourselves just like Haman. We're waiting out there thinking that God is going to be angry with us or happy with us based on our performance. And like Haman, when we act that way, we're choosing the wrong king. God, the God of the Bible, the king of the universe, the Lord of all creation is painted in stark contrast to our rulers on earth and the kings of this earth. Our God is loving he is full of grace. He is patient. He's not moody and unpredictable like Xerxes. And nowhere is that more clear than when we see our king went from his throne and came down to his creation. Where we loved ourselves and we looked to prop ourselves up, God the Son loved God the Father perfectly. He had a perfect relationship with God. Instead of looking to himself and propping himself up as a king should, he looked to others and he propped up others and he sacrificed for others and he served others. And he provided a way for us rebellious, prideful people to recover a relationship with God. To start looking at God instead of looking at ourselves. Because through Jesus through his life, his death, and resurrection, we are able to freely and without fear enter into the throne room of God. And that's really important because he gave his prideful people a gift. And it's a free gift, but it wasn't cheaply bought. All the anger that our pride and our sin deserves, all the wrath that God had for all the sin that we ever committed, if you are a follower of Christ, it is already gone on Jesus. The person who had no pride took all the pain and the, and, the, and the wrath of pride upon himself on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God, so that when we, God looks at us, he doesn't see a prideful, sinful human being he sees his son. And I know all of us still struggle, whether you've been a Christian for a minute or for a hundred years, you know you still struggle with pride. 
And you can say, well, God probably still looks at me as a prideful, sinful person. But that's not true. And that's not the story that you need to live with. The Spirit of God is living in you if you are a Christian. He is making you more and more like his son. Like all Old Testament characters, we see uh, Esther as a picture of Jesus. We see her humility and her sacrifice, and it points to a greater humility and a greater sacrifice in Jesus. But we also see judgment as well. We see Haman, who was propping himself up, who made an execution device for Mordecai. All his pride, instead of humbling himself, all his pride led to being, impaling on, being impaled on this pole. And that is the ultimate judgment for those who are not in Christ. It points to something that happened to Jesus. But if you are not in line with Jesus, if you are not a Christian, that is the, the, the hope that you have. Judgment. But we also see an ultimate act of humility that we're reminded of every single week. And that's through communion. And this is a reminder every single week of, of uh, humility that we can go into our worlds and, 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 and truly love other people well because we have Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, and that's a striking sentence right there. Because on the night he was betrayed, what would we do? Well, I would be seeking justice. I would be trying to catch whoever betrayed me. I would be um, trying to seek revenge. But Jesus sat with his followers. And on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so if you are a Christian, this meal is for you. If you are a Christian, you are associated with Jesus and you are able to take this. If you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. It's not for you. It's not to exclude you, but it just doesn't make sense. And so when we pray, we're going to have a time of of, of reflection and a time of responding. And during that time, come up whenever you want during these next two songs and take communion. We have lighting tables over here for us to pray for people who are far from Christ that the light of Christ will shine in their lives. We have prayer tables in the back. And just feel free to get up whenever you feel led to. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for not just coming and being an example, but for saving us, for giving us an opportunity to have a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray for everybody, myself included, that as we recognize pride in our lives, I pray that we don't get discouraged, we don't um, quit or give up or look primarily to ourselves, but we look to you and what you have done for us and that hope that you have given us. Lord, I pray for the, everyone in here that they're not listening to this as a sermon they want to share with somebody else or, or remember, think of somebody that really is prideful in their lives. I pray that every single person can see the pride in their own lives and go to you with it. Lord, I pray as we, as we grow to be more like you, that we can love you more, 
and love each other more. In your name I pray, amen.